So tonight we're going to study the first six judgments tonight, and then we'll follow that with the next three when we meet again. And then after that, we're going to look at the tenth judgment, which stands apart from the pattern. As we look at the first nine, we'll follow the pattern we started last week. We're going to review the form of each judgment. We're going to note any unique details about each judgment. And we're going to consider the way in which each judgment undermines the Egyptians' faith in their pagan gods. Because these judgments were directed not only at Egypt and Israel, but also at the false gods of Egypt. Then lastly, we're going to look for any significant prophetic aspect. And that is how these judgments individually form a picture of the last days in tribulation. Since the entire Exodus itself is a picture of the tribulation that is yet to come. So as the groups run in threes, we're looking at the first two groups tonight. Group one and group two. They have a pattern in which the first two of each group will have a warning and then the very first of each will have a warning in the morning time. This is all in keeping with the pattern we looked at last week. So let's begin reading tonight where we left off in Exodus chapter seven, verse 13. Yet Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is stubborn. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. And station yourself to meet him on the bank of the Nile, and you shall take in your hand the staff that was turned into a serpent. You shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But behold, you have not listened until now. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the water that is in the Nile with the staff that is in my hand, and it will be turned to blood. The fish that are in the Nile will die and the Nile will become foul and the Egyptians will find difficulty in drinking water from the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers and over their streams, over their pools and over all the reservoirs of water that they may become blood. And there will be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. So Moses and Aaron did, even as the Lord had commanded. And he lifted up the staff and he struck the water that was in the Nile in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. And all the water that was in the Nile was turned to blood. The fish that were in the Nile died and the Nile became foul so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. And the blood was through all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same with their secret arts. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then Pharaoh turned and went into his house with no concern, even for this. So all the Egyptians dug around the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. So the first judgment we know now is the plague of blood. So here's where we're going to use the handout that you now have or If you don't use one tonight or want to get one later, you can always find this online as part of the study online. And I'm going to put a version of it up here on the screen for us. And I'll be dropping in the content as we go. And uh, this gives some structure to what we want to see in these plagues, helps us keep our mind about what we're looking for in each case. So this is the plague that begins the first nine, to be sure. And this is the first of a series of three. So the warning came to Pharaoh as he's out by the river in the morning. God tells Moses to go there, find Pharaoh there, and while he's by the water in the morning, greet him and announce that his stubbornness is now going to result in God's judgment. 
Pharaoh will now have to suffer through a period of time in which all the water of Egypt has become blood. All of the water turned into blood. All rivers, all storage containers, anywhere that water has been kept above ground, it will become blood. And in particular, in verse 19, it mentions vessels of wood and stone. Now, that specific description is actually a very common phrase in Hebrew among Jews describing the implements of pagan worship. I don't know if we have a perfect parallel in our culture, but you might imagine one more like incense and bells. Phrases that immediately evoke in your mind the thought of some religious ceremony. But for Israel, it had a more specific connotation than just religion. It meant pagan religion. Because these were implements that were used in the worship process, holding various things, waters, fluids, whatever. And wherever these things are at use and with water, they now hold blood. So Egypt's religious practices come to a halt, at least for the time, because they have no ability to conduct them the way they would prefer. All their vessels are filled with blood. Now, this is not red water. The term in Scripture is very clear. It's blood. It's literally, if you could have stood there with Pharaoh on that day, you would have seen a river, a huge wide river of flowing human blood or some kind of blood. Instantly, fish die in that and probably come to the surface. So the blood you need to imagine now is covered probably from bank to bank with floating dead fish. Blood itself begins to spoil almost immediately, never mind in the heat of Egypt, which would then mean that the water became very foul very quickly. And of course, the scripture mentions that. So it's, to use the biblical term, odious. In verse 24, we read the Egyptians were finally able to find some fresh water by digging for it. So that shows where the distinction was drawn in God's plague. It was water above ground that was impacted. Water below ground seems to have been left unbothered by this plague, by this judgment. Then the magicians get into the act. And the magicians are called by Pharaoh. Now, the scripture doesn't give us a lot of detail, but if you had to put yourself in Pharaoh's shoes, you can begin to imagine what he might have been thinking when he called his magicians. Maybe something along the lines of, hey, did you see that, guys? They just turned all our water into blood. What can you do about that? Meaning, can you fix that? And the magicians say, oh, yeah, we can do that, too. And they make more water into blood. And at that point, it's not in Scripture, but I think the Pharaoh probably looked at them and said, huh? <laughs> I thought you were going to fix it. It's possible that what their efforts did at that moment was turn whatever water that the Egyptians had managed to dig up for themselves into blood so that more digging was now required. And if you think about the time that the whole thing lasted, seven days, it is possible to live without water for seven days, albeit... Some people would probably expire in that time and everyone else would suffer greatly. So I'm sure there was some water found through that digging, probably not nearly enough to accommodate everybody's needs. And just the grace of God shows up in the fact that it's seven days and no longer for this kind of a plague. Looking at what the magicians did for just a moment, because we looked at them doing this once before already, of course, with the snake and the staff. And, and we talked a bit about what that meant. Here you see them doing something equally miraculous on a much larger scale now, matching what, what Moses is doing here. They've worked what we're told are secret arts, which means simply they use the power of Satan. They use occultic power. Satan has given them this power in response to their worship of him through the pagan worship that dominates Egypt. And in seeing this miracle, we learn that Satan has the power to counterfeit God's work, even to the point of making water turn to blood. But Satan's power is limited in a very key sense here, 
It's limited in that he cannot undo the work of God. All he can do is what God has done already. He cannot do more than God created him to do, just as you and I cannot do more than we were created to do. And he's been created in a fashion that allows him to do things we can't do, things that are even miraculous, of course, for us. But he can never go beyond the boundaries God has established by his nature. And one of the things he can never do is to create anew. So his method, his modus operandi, is to counterfeit. Everything he does is a lie, and a lie has to have something of truth before a lie can exist. If you think about that philosophically, you can't lie until there's truth. That's true. Thank you. So remember, Satan wants to be God. That's ultimately his desire, to be God. And therefore, it only makes sense that his method of operating is to try to imitate God. But his imitations are counterfeits because he is not God, and therefore they're lies. And so he comes close, but not quite. But he cannot change God's plan. He cannot undo any of these judgments. He cannot counter God. He mimics In the end times, you're going to see him doing very much the same thing. He will bring a false Christ. We call him the Antichrist. He will bring a false prophet who will do false miracles and cause people to worship a false God. He will create the false trinity, which we studied if you were with us as part of that revelation study. You remember this. He creates a false trinity. He has a false temple. I mean, everything is just the counterfeiting of what God has done. Each of these replicas is something that knows God's purpose first and then tries to build on that in a false way. But until God reveals himself, Satan has no material to work with. This is why John tells us that the appearance of the Christ is proof to us that now we are in the last days because now we can have antichrists. You could not have antichrists till Christ was revealed because Satan can't create something new. He has to mimic what's already known. So until a Christ was revealed, he had no pattern on which to build his mimicry until he had a way to counterfeit Christ. So Antichrist is the counterfeit of something that we already know revealed. There could be no Antichrist until the first Christ had come. That also, by the way, reminds us from what we said last time. Just because you can see something miraculous, not a parlor trick, but truly supernatural miracles is not proof that God did it. A miracle by itself is not proof of God. So blood judgment now is... The judgment we're concerned with, and at the point in this so far, you should have filled out the name. We're now going to go down the list. Was there a warning? Absolutely there was. And was it copied? Yes, it absolutely was. What, what is the tribulation connection? We can find parallels for all of the first nine judgments in some form or fashion during the time of tribulation. Some have a direct parallel like blood because there is a judgment in the tribulation of blood. Other times it's implied, and I'll show you what I mean when we get there. We're going to point out those connections across each of these judgments. But the main point in this exercise is simply to acknowledge or to recognize the foreshadowing of Exodus for the tribulation. So in other words, the main point of this exercise is not that in any one of these connections there's some great knowledge available to us, but rather that the pattern is being established so that when we look back on it, we'll be able to say with clarity, yes, I see God now showing me something that was intended to instruct me in some way about what is yet to come. So like we saw last week, the ten plagues eventually result in Israel being set free from bondage, worshiping in the mountain of God, and then entering into the promised land. Well, here you're going to see that pattern now playing out on a lesser scale. 
And so each of the events here sets in place a picture or representation of God at work in that fashion. So what's the effect of all this, of this picture? Well, the effect, at least one effect, is that future generations of Israel from our day, so those coming in the future, I'm saying, they will experience the tribulation. And while they're in the tribulation, through the Holy Spirit's work, many of them will be given eyes to see and ears to hear concerning the truth of the gospel. As they come to that knowledge of the truth, united with their understanding of their own Jewish history, these pieces will suddenly come to play in helping them appreciate their circumstances. Just as the Jews of Moses' day could experience some of these judgments and not be disturbed by them before they knew God was at work through them for their benefit, likewise, the believing Jews of tribulation will come to see this pattern, I believe, out of Scripture, and having seen it, come to understand what they're going through in a new and better way and see hope in it rather than devastation because they'll understand God's purposes are to repeat the exodus for Israel that he started with Moses. So the purpose in the tribulation we, we just mentioned, it's to connect to some of the plagues. Specifically in this case, it connects to the plague of the second trumpet judgment. Also, you may remember the two witnesses are given power to turn water into blood. And then lastly, the Egyptian gods that are mocked by the impact of this particular judgment. Let's go through the list here just briefly. First, the river itself, the Nile, it's a god to the Egyptians. It's now been turned into blood and it's foul. If the Nile River was in fact a god, then the, the Egyptians would have expected it would have been able to defend itself, but it didn't. Then Khnum is the guardian of the Nile source. So the source for those waters has its own god. Well, that god failed at protecting it. Hapi is the spirit of the Nile. Obviously, that god failed as well. Osiris is the guardian of the underworld. And since the underworld is considered on or under the earth, the Nile was considered the bloodstream of that god. Ironically, it's turned to blood. Sepik or Sepik is the crocodile god. Well, the crocodiles either died or they had to flee the river. Nayath is the lapis fish protector. Lapis is one of the most prevalent fish in the Nile. And Hathor is the chromus fish protector. Chromus is another very common fish. All those fish died. So here's all these gods represented by the water or the fish or the crocodiles, all of them either dead, made foul and useless. Clearly, all of these gods are being mocked by God's judgment because they weren't even able to protect themselves, much less help Egypt. Altogether, this judgment would have made Egypt question the power of their own gods and consider the power of the Hebrew God as being greater. And that lesson is part of what God has set out as the purpose for these judgments. Remember when he started, he said one of the reasons for this judgment is so that all the world would know the God of Israel and know the power of the God of Israel. Don't underestimate the impact of these judgments on Israel, though, itself, because these ten judgments that we're studying, the first one now and more to come, they are intended for Egypt, they are intended for the world, but their most lasting impact is actually on the nation of Israel. And you're going to see now more reason for God hardening Pharaoh's heart because his desire is for Israel to know him in a way they have never known him before. And all ten of these plagues need to happen in order for that purpose to be met. These judgments impacted them as well, especially since they had seen magicians counterfeiting miracles. So these are people who have lived now for hundreds of years in a country in which the magicians of that country could make miracles like this happen with the power of Satan. 
How does the God of Israel appear to that nation and impress upon them his power when he's competing against that kind of show? Well, he needs to come in with something big and dramatic and forceful and one that's designed to make the other gods weak and useless. So that by contrast, there's no doubting who the real God is. In fact, I want you to consider that every generation that is currently living in Israel has gone through their entire life up to this moment without knowing anything of the power of God. To this point in the story of of the Bible, Genesis and Exodus, only the patriarchs had seen God at work, according to the, the testimony of Scripture. And only on occasion did the enemies of those patriarchs see that same power themselves. So there were no witnesses to that work alive in this day. There was no written Scripture that we know of in this day, although there would have been an oral tradition. There were no graven images, no statuettes, and that's in keeping with God's desire, of course. So the Jews would have had very little by way of proof or experience to validate that their God was truly the most powerful God, never mind the only God. We take that for granted, and the Hebrew Scriptures testify to that, but those Scriptures hadn't even been written yet. So what was their personal experience of this true living God? Now they're seeing God for the very first time and in a very dramatic way. This revelation of God is going to produce a lasting, permanent mark on the psyche of Israel. And we see that even today, proven in their culture today. Never again will the nation fail to understand the God they worship. There's a thinking, I I believe, that's common to people who study the Old Testament, that the world of the old must have been filled with miracles day in and day out. But if you look at Scripture as a whole, you realize that's not true at all. These miracles, including the ones they're going to experience later at the mountain and those that they're going to experience while they wander in the desert, will create a lasting impression unlike anything else the nation has seen before this time. And in all of history, it's been repeated only twice more. There's only three historical periods in all human history in which Miracles of this nature, of this magnitude, were commonplace for any extended period of time, where they might have become widespread for any period of time. The first time was here in the Exodus. The second time is during the ministry of Elijah and Elisha. And the third time is in the period of Jesus and the apostles of the early church. Other than those three periods in history, there's not been any regular routine of God showing himself through miracles. There will be one more time in human history in which God is going to make himself seen in that way during the tribulation. And if you'll look at all four of those events, there is a common thread across all four of them. All of these times you see this work being done, this miraculous period of time being created as preparation for a time of judgment against Israel, followed by deliverance in some fashion. Here you find it preceding Israel's time wandering in the desert, a period of 40 years of judgment for unbelief followed by an entrance into the land. In Elijah and Elisha's time, it preceded the judgment against the ten tribes in the northern kingdom for their apostasy. And then with Jesus and the apostles, it precedes the current period of Israel's hardening and the destruction of the temple and their scattering in A.D. 70. There's that one final time coming, and that one final time comes in conjunction with God's chastisement of Israel and the world with it during the time of tribulation. So it's not a good thing especially if you're a Jew, to see God going about this kind of work on a regular basis. It brings bad things in some cases or to some people. So this is a very unique period of time. It has a tremendous influence on on the psyche of Israel. It stays with them ever more, and that's the intent. This would explain very simply 
why it is that God chose this method to free Israel as opposed to simply showing up one day and planting in Pharaoh's heart the desire to let his people go. After all, that's what he did with Cyrus. One day Cyrus had Israel in captivity in Persia. Next day he says, it's time to let them go. But with Pharaoh it had to be complex because the point was to make an impression on a people, Israel, and do it in a special way. And that's what God's doing here. So now we move to the second judgment. That begins chapter 8, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite your whole territory with frogs. The Nile will swarm with frogs, which will come up and go into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed. And we don't let pets on the bed in my house. so. And uh, into the houses of your servants and on your people and into your ovens and into your kneading bowls. So the frogs will come up on you and your people and all your servants. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers and onto the streams and over the pools and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. The magicians did the same with their secret arts, making frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Very helpful, men. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Entreat the Lord, this is Pharaoh now speaking, entreat the Lord that he may remove the frogs from me and from my people and I will let the people go that they may sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, the honor is yours to tell me. When shall I entreat for you and your servants and your people that the frogs be destroyed from you and your houses that they may be left only in the Nile? Then he said, tomorrow. So he said, may it be according to your word that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs will depart from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They will be left only in the Nile. Then Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh and Moses cried to the Lord concerning the frogs, which he had inflicted upon Pharaoh. The Lord did according to the word of Moses and the frogs died out of the houses, the courts and the fields. So they piled them in heaps and the land became foul. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart, did not listen to them as the Lord had said. So the second judgment is the plague of frogs. And so we start our second line here. We mentioned in the introduction last week that these first three judgments are milder than those that will follow. And they're less severe because they create temporary discomfort. They don't have permanent lasting effects on the people. They're more known for their disgusting and inconvenient and uncomfortable effects than anything else. But don't underestimate how much things can get uncomfortable. And certainly this one makes that point, because just like with all the plagues, these are natural things taken to an extreme degree and anything taken too much is a bad thing. And that's what you see with frogs. Some of you, you're thinking, well, I don't even want one frog. So I don't think there's any amount that would do. But for some people, maybe a few are OK. It starts the similar way, God telling Moses to warn Pharaoh. So this is the second of that first group. And so it still comes with a warning. God will smite Egypt with frogs, it says. In other words, smite is just a fancy biblical word for strike. So I'm going to strike you with frogs. The entire land is going to be invaded by frogs. Now, the frogs are going to find their way, interestingly, into every little nook and cranny of everyday life. They're going to come to everyone and go everywhere. Notice some of the places that are mentioned, though, because it comes up later here in a minute. The bed and the bedroom. Nothing like climbing into bed at night and finding a slimy frog down there with you. 
As before, Aaron stretches out the rod. So this process has continued with God tells Moses. Remember, God would be to Moses as Moses is to Pharaoh. Moses would be like God to Pharaoh. So Moses delivers this news to Aaron. So what we have to consider is happening is Moses is getting private instructions from God. Aaron doesn't hear anything. Moses goes to Aaron and says, this is what God has told me. And then Aaron's taking that on faith. We could do a whole side study here on the faith of Aaron. The man who's being told, yeah, if you just take your rod and do this, something magic's going to happen. Okay, but he's doing it. He's following along. So God has told Moses, Moses has told Aaron, and then Aaron uses the rod to create the miracle. Aaron is the instigator of the first three. It'll move to other actors in the latter ones. The frog plague has a parallel to the tribulation, just as with blood. But there's no frog plague in tribulation. So unlike the blood where you had a very specific connection, you don't find that here quite so easily. But there is a moment in tribulation when demons are sent out by the false prophet to convince the kings of the nations to align their forces for battle against the Jews. And in John's description in Revelation 16:13, he uses a very interesting phrase. He calls these spirits, these demons, frogs. He says they're like frogs in the way they go out. Now, the only explanation for using the term frog to explain the appearance of a demon, uh, particularly why would God have chosen that form to show John? And the answer could be, and I believe is, so that it would draw this connection back to Exodus, so that this plague could be represented somewhere in the activity of tribulation. Once again, the magicians copy the miracle. Once again, an example that gives us evidence to teach us something about the power of Satan. Here you see him creating life. I mean, there's no other way around it. These frogs came from somewhere. And he's able to produce additional frogs somehow. And in remembering their purpose here is to try to show that their power equals the power that Moses is bringing to the party. But they're never able to come up with something novel. They're only able to copy what's been done already. Satan has the power to create life, at least in the, to the extent he can put more frogs on the earth, but he does not have the power to get rid of the frogs that are already there. Now, that's a very interesting dilemma or very interesting contrast when you think about it. If I gave you the task of creating a frog or getting rid of a frog, which one's easier? They couldn't get rid of a frog, but they could create more. And so it's not inherently the task that's difficult or not difficult. It's whether or not it is against God or with God that made the difference. So for something that was against God, they could not do it. For something that was with God, they could do it, even though it was miraculous. Interesting. The gods that are mocked by this plague among those in Egypt, there are two gods particularly. Hopi is the god that was credited with bringing fertility to the land through the flooding of the Nile. So the Nile Delta floods annually, and when it floods, it covers a large area of the Nile Delta. As that Nile flooding recedes, it's left deposits on the land. It makes very fertile farmland. That's why Egypt was always fertile, even in drought. This fertile farmland then was celebrated in Egypt every year when it became available. And the way they knew when that farmland had fully receded, when the way the Egyptians knew to go out and look at the land, was that after the flooding had receded, frogs would emerge and start to show themselves on the land coming out of that floodwater. So the appearing of frogs in Egypt was considered a blessed event because it was a signal that the Nile Delta now was ready for planting and was fertile. So Hapi was the god that guarded or was credited with guarding the fertility of the land from the flooding of the Nile. So in this case, the bothersome nature of the frogs is counterproductive and mocks this God who 
in their mind, is benevolent and always brings good things. Now you see the God's potentially this God of fertility from frogs bringing bad things. And in conjunction with that God, there was another God, Hecht. And this was a woman God, a goddess, had the head of a frog, the body of a woman, and was the wife of Canum, the earlier God. And she by herself was the emblem of fertility, human fertility. You can see that God being mocked in the fact that frogs are in your bed. Probably not much fertility in Egypt during a plague in which there's a bunch of frogs in everybody's bed. The way God has constructed each of these plagues, it doesn't necessarily destroy the other God. How can you destroy something that doesn't exist? It mocks it, makes fun of it. It makes it look weak and useless, which is what it is. After the blood plague, we heard that Pharaoh simply turned his back, walked in and ignored it, right? Very striking the way the text says it, in fact. He paid no attention to it, wanted to show that it didn't bother him. But now, after the frog plague, he calls Moses for an audience and starts begging for Moses to get rid of the frogs. That tells us how onerous the frog plague has been. Because if I say, I'm going to give you a choice between two plagues, which of these two plagues would you have picked? I, I think most of us, I, I, if I had to think about, do I have water or do I have to put it with frogs? I'll probably put it with the frogs, assuming that's better. And maybe you'd choose differently, but it appears the frogs were worse. Because Pharaoh didn't seem to be as bothered by the blood. So Moses hears Pharaoh's request. And when he's heard the request, he responds to Pharaoh by saying, you know what? You name the day and the frogs will disappear. Now, for some inexplicable reason, Pharaoh doesn't say today. He says tomorrow. All right. Tomorrow it is. Perhaps he was thinking that's the best he could arrange. I don't know. But Moses says it'll be just as you spoke. And what's the point in all of this? Well, the point is he wants Pharaoh to understand that the God that is working with Moses is in fact the God in control of all of these events. And if Pharaoh's response can be met perfectly by Moses' appeal to God, then it's just going to connect the dots in Pharaoh's head, or that's the hope anyway. So then after that request is granted by Moses, what does Moses do? Interestingly, he goes back to God. He's just made a deal. He now has to find God backing. So he immediately goes to God in prayer and he's asked the Lord to give Pharaoh the relief he sought. Now, you might have thought that God would have responded by saying, you know, who told you you can just start negotiating the end of these plagues on your own? The last one lasted seven days. Maybe I've got a plan for this one to go 14 days. Now you've just messed it up. But no, the only thing we hear is he appeals. God the Father does. God can compel Pharaoh to change his mind at any moment, can he not? And he can do that with or without the plagues. So the plagues in and of themselves are not going to be the cause for the change of Pharaoh's heart. Quite the contrary. God's going to prevent them from changing Pharaoh's heart, at least until the 10th plague. So there's no issue here with the method being messed up. There's no problem here with Moses changing the process in such a way that it's going to undo something God's at work trying to do. The plagues have nothing to do really with the process at all, if that's what we're concerned about. So there's no problem with Moses saying, I want it to be gone today versus tomorrow versus any other day. The issue here, though, is in the way these plagues are having an effect on the world's attention and on Israel's attention, on Egypt's attention. So we go back to the central question. When Moses intercedes for Pharaoh to God and asks for this, how does he have confidence that Pharaoh's going to get what he expects? Did he know in advance that this was going to be God's expectation? I don't think so necessarily. God does as Moses requests. In fact, look at verse 13. We're told the Lord did according to the word of Moses. That seems like a backwards sentence, doesn't it? What you're seeing here is a picture of intercession. Moses pictures who again? 
Moses pictures Christ. And in that picture now, you see how Christ intercedes for us with the Father. When we make a request of the Father, a request that is in keeping with the Father's desires, then we will receive that request, but we receive it by way of a mediator. The Son, Christ, intercedes for us, and the Father does according to the Son's intercession. Now, this is not because Moses, or even Christ for that matter, has control over the Father through that intercession. Rather, it's the Father who has chosen Moses and then Christ to represent him through this process. And therefore, the Father is willing to receive Moses' request and act upon it, and likewise his sons, because it suits his purpose. So said another way, God is agreeing to do what Moses is asking because Moses is asking to do what God wants to do. And the length of the time, whether it would be tomorrow or Wednesday or Thursday, is immaterial to God's plan. It would have been whatever Pharaoh said because the whole point was to make an impression on Pharaoh. So don't miss the courage and the boldness of Moses in this. We are likewise commanded in Scripture to go boldly into prayer because we have a Lord who is interceding. And when the prayer we have aligns with the heart of God, we can expect that it would be met with acceptance. So the closer we walk with the Lord, the more we'll know his will. And the more we know his will, the more likely our prayers will be aligned with it. And then the more likely our prayers will be answered. It's just that simple. So based on that intercession, God caused the frogs to die. And with the mass death of millions of frogs, the nation now stinks and rots, at least until they're gone. As that plague passes, then the misery of it fades from Pharaoh's memory and Pharaoh's heart is hardened and he's right back to where he started. He won't allow them to go, even though he said he would. So now the final plague of the first series begins. And as the pattern dictates, it will come without warning. So we now go to the third one, verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth that it may become gnats through all the land of Egypt. They did so. And Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth. And there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats through all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried with their secret arts to bring forth gnats. But they could not. Hallelujah. Let all the people rejoice. (laughs) So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. So as with all of the first three, Aaron is the actor here bringing forth the plague using the rod. You notice how it's always a rod that's being used. His is a rod of wood, but in it comes the picture of a rod of iron, which rules judgment, in other words. So as he strikes his staff on the earth, the dust of the ground becomes something. Now, my English Bible says gnats. Some of yours say lice, but the Hebrew word is an enigma. And an enigma is not an insect. That's a term that means we don't know what it means. Dr. Arnold Fruchenbaum from Ariel Ministries, he suggests that the word in Hebrew is defined as mixture. It's just such a strange word. Nobody really understands what it means perfectly. I'll take Dr. Fruchenbaum's authority on the matter. And so he says it's the word mixture simply to mean a mixture of insects. It is not meant to mean one particular kind of insect. That would make some sense when you consider that there's one that has flies. And there you have a very specific insect being 
selected for that plague. But in contrast to that, here we just see an earlier plague, a less damaging plague, in which it is simply a mixture of insects, like gnats or like lice, a plague that annoys and infests the body and generally just makes you miserable. Now, the purpose of the infestation is to be so severe as to be miserable. So that's the intent, obviously. When you look for a parallel from this plague to something in the time of tribulation and to the end times, you have to look a little harder because there is no direct reference to insects in this way. We know that there are two witnesses, however, who are said to have the power to bring plagues. And the description in Revelation is really interesting when you look at it and keeping in mind what we're looking for right now. Listen to this in Revelation 11:6, speaking of the two witnesses, these meaning the two have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. They have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. Now, the first one sounds like Elijah. The second one sounds like Moses. But at the end there, it says in with every plague to strike the earth with every plague. Now, we might assume that the plagues these men bring include perhaps a plague similar to the one we're looking at now. And I think we can make that assumption simply because in the reference to them in 11.6, it says they are doing things like turning water into blood and it says striking the earth with, quote, every plague. Now, it doesn't say they strike the earth with whatever plague. It says they strike the earth with every plague. The sense of it here is that they have a prescribed number of plagues that they are supposed to hand out and they are doing them all. And that would sound even more interesting when you consider that the one that's named is blood. Well, the first one is blood. To read into the text a little, and I have to admit I'm doing that a bit here, but if I read into the text just a little, it would seem to be suggesting that they've come with the ten plagues as their goal. Every of them, in other words, first one being blood and it's mentioned specifically, and then the rest are assumed to be understood after that. Perhaps, perhaps. If so, then we would perhaps say this is the place in which you would see this plague mimicked is in something that comes from these men. Now, for the first time, the magicians can't copy it. They're stuck. It's not clear why they can't. Although, as I said, I'm sure the people of Egypt are thrilled that they can't. But it is clear they can't do it. They admit they can't do it. So here's a place in which Satan can no longer counterfeit the miracle. So here's another piece of data for us in concerning how Satan works and what his power is like. The mere fact that Satan hit a limit here tells us that Satan has limits. Soon enough, God's power is seen to be clearly greater than Satan's. Soon enough, God says no to something Satan might otherwise wish to do. When they can't replicate it, the magicians correctly declare this is a plague from the finger of God. So now you see the plagues having had that desired effect, at least in part on these Egyptians and on more of them to come. The plague also had an interesting side effect, which isn't mentioned in the Bible, but it would have happened, we know, just because we know enough about Egyptian culture to assume it. Egyptian priests were scrupulous about cleanliness in that culture. They were so obsessed with remaining perfectly clean, bodily clean, in order to be able to perform their priestly duties, that they went to the effort of shaving every last hair on their entire bodies, which explains why you see in some paintings of what Egyptians look like, no eyebrows, no hair. Well, if they didn't have clothes on, you would be able to tell it went everywhere else, too. They shaved the whole body. 
And one of the reasons they went to that extent was not because hair itself was the problem, but because hair could hide insects on the body. So they wanted no chance that their bodies weren't perfectly clean. So they would shave them all. Well, here we're told that the, everybody in Egypt is infested by these insects, lice, gnats, etc. So it made all of the priests of Egypt unclean, unable to perform their priestly duties. It mocked them in that respect. Speaking of uh, religious duties, let's look at the gods of Egypt, the ones that are mocked in this particular plague, beginning with Uachit, Uachit, the protector of swarming insects. They had a god who had that job. And then Seb, who was the god that specifically protected people from lice. And I guess if you've had lice, sooner or later you decide you need a god against them. <laughs> These two gods are mocked by the fact that, once again, here comes these insects and the gods of Egypt could do nothing about them. You have to also assume that in the course of all of these plagues, the people of Egypt would have known to turn to these gods in the midst of the plague. They would have seen the swarms of insects and they would have cried out to Urachit, stop this swarm. No, it didn't happen. Nevertheless, Pharaoh's heart was hardened and so on. The process moves forward. Next series. Exodus 8.20, now the Lord said to Moses, rise early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh as he comes out to the water and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. For if you do not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and on your servants and on your people and into your houses and the houses of the Egyptians will be full of swarms of flies and also the ground on which they dwell. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people are living so that no swarms of flies will be there in order that you may know that I, the Lord, am in the midst of the land. I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow, this sign will occur. Then the Lord did so. And there came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and the houses of his servants. And the land was laid waste because of the swarms of flies in all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, it is not right to do so, for we will sacrifice to the Lord our God what is an abomination to the Egyptians. And if we sacrifice what is an abomination to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not then stone us? We must go a three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he commands us. Pharaoh said, I will let you go that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you shall not go very far away. Make supplication for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I'm going out from you, and I shall make supplication to the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. Only do not let Pharaoh deal deceitfully again in not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and made supplication to the Lord. The Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also, and he did not let the people go. So the next judgment begins the next series of three. So that means that like the first of every series, there's a warning in the morning. Remember, the first series produced severe annoyances, you might call it. But each plague left the people untouched and they were temporary. They were quickly reversed. Now the plagues get progressively worse and they begin to impact the people and the animals in severe ways. And that's our first clue to know that when we talk about flies here, there's something different going on than merely what happened in the earlier example with the swarms. Because if this one's moved it up a notch, this can't simply be another way in which we have swarming insects. This plague, we're told, brings swarms of biting flies. And there's a particular kind of fly in Egypt that's in view here. 
This is a dogfly or a gadfly. Here's one that is so severe, so different, that now God specifically calls out that only Egypt will be affected. I'm not going to allow any of this to touch my people at all. That tells us that in the earlier three, there was some common impact. When the water turned to blood, there wasn't going to be some water in Goshen left over because then the Egyptians would have just gone to Goshen to drink it. Likewise, when the frogs came, the frogs covered the whole land of Egypt. The reason God allowed some of that to impact the Jews in that time was it was not directed at the people particularly. It was really more directed at the environment of Egypt. And so the whole environment was being wrapped up in these judgments. That's a pattern that's very similar to the judgments of tribulation. Even though the number of judgments is different, in tribulation they're also divided into groups of three. And the first group of the judgments of tribulation, the seals, They affect everyone on earth, including the believer. They're not limited to unbelievers. But once you reach the second set of judgments, the trumpets, from that point forward, they only affect the unbelievers because they begin to affect the persons of the individual. They begin to do things to people. And God in tribulation says they will not affect those who have the seal of the living God. Those have been set apart. So notice in verse 24 that the arrival of the flies comes by the Lord alone. Moses and Aaron aren't part of this directly like they've been. These next series, all three of the next judgments in the second series, all come only by the hand of God. The arrival of the flies, we're told, makes the land waste. That's another clue to tell us these aren't just normal flies. There's something different going on here. The strength of that phrase gives us an indication of how severe the plague was. And I have a description from a book written by two men, Kyle and Delich. And here's what they say. When enraged, the dogfly fastens themselves upon the human body, especially upon the edge of the eyelids. I knew you'd love that. They not only torture, but they devour men. And that word devour is found also in Psalm 78:45 when it talks about this same plague again, looking back. It devours the men, disfiguring them by the swelling produced by their sting. It also kills plants in which they deposit their eggs. The blood-sucking gadfly or dogfly was something to be abhorred and may have been responsible for a great deal of blind men in the land following this judgment. So now you can see why this moves us up a notch from simply swarming insects to something that was quite severe against the people. In response, Pharaoh's finally moved to negotiate a little bit or to try to negotiate. He first tries to persuade Moses to accept something less than he's been asking. So he first proposes here, well, Israel can sacrifice. You just got to do it in the land. Obviously, Pharaoh knows that if he lets Israel leave the land, they're not coming back. So we see in this negotiation process proof that what he's trying to do is let this stuff pass, get done with all of this judgment without actually letting Israel escape. He's looking for a way to keep the slave labor. Interestingly here, I find this fascinating, Moses responds to this offer not by saying we don't negotiate, but by objecting to a detail in the plan. He notes that the animals that Israel would sacrifice are animals that Egypt either detests, like sheep, they detested sheep and sheep herders, or animals that Egypt worships, like bulls. So if they were to take sheep into the public realm and sacrifice them, or bulls and sacrifice them, they would have been stoned. And remember, they're slaves. They can be killed by anyone in Egypt almost with impunity. So this is a real threat. This is a real risk. The populace of Egypt could stone the slaves if they chose to. So we might have expected Moses to simply say, God doesn't negotiate, give him what he wants. Instead, Moses says, well, 
I just can't do this in the way you're asking because of the nature of these animals. He proves to be a pretty tough negotiator, able to stand up to politicians and stick to his guns. You know, he'd actually have made a great NRA president. This... And if you didn't catch that Charlton Heston reference, I can't help you. All right, this leads Pharaoh to another concession. So he's back to negotiating. He says, all right, well, if you didn't like that plan, how about this? You can go into the desert. Just don't go very far. That's my favorite. Don't go very far. It's becoming more and more obvious. He just doesn't want them to escape. So he's trying to keep them close at hand. But even more interesting than that, Moses agrees to that one. You notice? Because he began to negotiate, now the terms have reached the point where Moses thinks they may be close enough that we can have a deal here. So he assumes, I guess, if they made it into the desert, they'd at least just keep going. So he goes to God and he intercedes. And God responds. The flies leave. Now, these flies were not going to stop biting until Moses interceded. That's been made clear by the previous judgment. So the intercession was necessary to stop the plague. And as expected... The Pharaoh decided that having survived another plague, well, I guess we're okay now. Why do I need to let the people go? And so he hardens his heart. In fact, you must imagine at this point that the on again, off again pattern of the plagues actually plays into the hardening of Pharaoh's heart a little bit. Because if you've already survived this many, maybe you're starting to figure, well, these aren't fun, but I've been able to get through them. Moses will just keep taking them away when I ask. A little lesson for us. If we experience God's displeasure on an occasional basis some, through some chastisement, through some disciplining that God will do in our lives, through whatever method he may choose, it's tempting to think at times that when that passes, for whatever reason, that the worst is behind us. And we just hope that the past won't repeat itself. And that may give us reason to go on sinning, assuming that God will let us do that indefinitely. That's a foolish game because God always has more staying power and more options than we do. And you can't let God's forbearance become our ignorance and an opportunity to go on sinning. The fastest way to sum that up comes out of Hebrews, Hebrews 10:26. He says, if we go on sinning willfully after having received the knowledge of the truth, there is no that there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. He's just saying, if you keep going on with knowledge of the truth, knowledge that God expects differently and you continue to flaunt that. By simply going on with what you choose to go on for, there's no more sacrifice for sin. So what he's pointing out is we don't have this pattern in our life in which we get to sin on Saturday and confess on Sunday. In the sense that the Jews had their regular sacrifice to absolve them of their guilt. He's saying you don't get that pattern anymore. You're now expected to walk in holiness every day. And if you refuse to do that, you have only the terrifying expectation of a God who brings judgment when and how he wishes. Finally, the gods mocked by this judgment. Beelzebub, the god of the flies, who in Scripture is also representative of Satan, is mocked by this plague. The second plague in the second series also comes with a warning. It's pestilence, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and speak to him. Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go so that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and continue to hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will come with a very severe pestilence on your livestock which are in the field on the horses, on the donkeys, on the camels, on the herds, and on the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing will die of all that belongs to the sons of Israel. The Lord set a definite time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. So the Lord did this thing on the next day. And all the livestock of Egypt died. But the livestock of the sons of Israel, not one died. 
Pharaoh sent, and behold, there was not even one of the livestock of Israel dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. This is a pretty simple one. Pestilence is any disease, and some believe in this case it may have been anthrax, which is extremely deadly for animals. And now for the first time, the Egyptians are going to suffer loss of personal property in all of this. God offers some mercy to them. He says it's only for the animals in the field. So if your animal's in a barn, if it's kept at home, it's not going to die. But if it's out in the field, it's going to die. This is a pattern that will continue. A pattern in which God begins to allow those who may be God-fearing within the nation of Egypt to begin seeing opportunity to save themselves from the plagues, even as the rest of Egypt suffers through them. As a result of this plague, every single animal in the field is gone. This is a massive loss of life among livestock. It would have taken the Egyptians a long time to recover from this in terms of growing their herds back. The Pharaoh wanted to know for sure that what Moses told him was true, so he has somebody go out and say, go see him for a fact that all the Jewish animals survived, and he found that obviously to be true. Historical records of this period tell us that this Pharaoh, Amenhotep II, was particularly given to worshiping cattle. That particular god really fascinated him. Gispin wrote this, Amenhotep II surpassed all his predecessors in his fanatical devotion to the worship of animals, especially to the bull. In 1906, a statue made of sandstone was excavated representing a cow. And Amenhotep is there in the statue, leaning his head under its head. He is also depicted kneeling under a cow, drinking its divine milk. He is thus seen as a child and slave of the cow goddess. What a threat this must have been to him to see all bulls in the nation die. Speaking of gods, the ones that are mocked, first one is the Apis bull. The Apis bull is the sacred bull of Egypt. It's believed to be the model for the calf that's made later at the base of the mountain, the one that they worship while Moses was on the mountain. We'll study that, of course. What's unique about the Apis bull is it's always kept in the open. Because it's God, it's never confined anywhere in any enclosure. So every Apis bull in Egypt would have been struck by this pestilence. Uh, Menevis, the sacred bull of the god Ra. Hathor, goddess with a head of a cow and a body of a woman. Nome is a ram-like god. Unsurprisingly, Pharaoh doesn't relent. He's a stubborn man, and in the process, his nation now has lost a lot of wealth. At this point, though it's not raised in the text, it does come later in the ninth and 10th plagues. And you should expect now that somewhere in the, in the underpinnings of the culture, there's some rumbling, there's some grumbling, there's some whispers about how long is our Pharaoh going to let this continue? We're losing real things now. We're losing our cattle. Last plague, the last of the series, obviously no warning with this one because the last of the series has no warning. Verse 8 begins that plague. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take for yourselves handfuls of soot from a kiln and let Moses throw it toward the sky in the side of Pharaoh. It will become fine dust over the land of Egypt and it will become boils breaking out with sores on man and beast throughout all of the land of Egypt. So they took soot from a kiln and stood before Pharaoh and Moses threw it toward the sky and it became boils breaking out with sores on man and beast. The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils for the boils were on the magicians as well as on all the Egyptians. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not listen to them just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. So God turns dust into boils on the bodies of the Egyptians. And the dust is taken from Jewish kilns 
And the kilns here are the ones that were used to fire up the bricks in their slave work. So it's a bit of justice there. The connection being that the Jews now get a chance to see God working for revenge in the face of their harsh treatment. This would be a confirmation of what Paul says when he says, leave room for the vengeance of God. God will always get the opportunity to pay back. I wonder if during the period of these plagues, the Egyptians started treating Israel better or worse. Initially, maybe worse. Eventually, that tide turns. Boils is one of the tribulation judgments. So here's one in which you see a direct parallel. The boils were on every man, including the magicians. And it made them look particularly foolish when they couldn't even mimic it or escape it or protect themselves from it. So they didn't even stand in front of Pharaoh because they looked disfigured. The magicians, you notice, are still trying. They're they're still being mentioned, which is a way of saying they're still trying to mimic, but they've long since lost the power to do so. What kind of sickness do you think this was? Well, one theory proposed, again, by Kyle and Delich, the natural substratum of this plague is discovered by most commentators in the so-called Nile blisters. Most people think that this was an incidence of Nile blisters taken to that extreme level. Remember, all of these plagues are something natural that happens, just made extreme. Well, there is something called Nile blisters, which come out in innumerable little pus pockets upon the scarlet-colored skin and change in a short space of time into small, round, and thickly crowded blisters. This is called by the Egyptians today Ham el Nile, or the heat of the induation. According to Dr. Bill Hartz, it is a rash which occurs in summer, chiefly towards the close of the time of the overflowing of the Nile, and it produces a burning and prickling sensation upon the skin. It consists of small red and slightly rounded elevations in the skin, which give strong twitches and slight stinging sensations resembling those of scarlet fever. The cause of this eruption, which occurs only in men and not in animals, has not been determined, some attributing it to the water, others to the heat. In this plague, it went everywhere, man and animals, and to an excessive degree. The gods impacted, as we finish, Sekhmet, she had the body of a woman and the head of a lioness, and she was supposedly the one with power over epidemics. So much for her. Serapis, god of healing, he didn't show up. Imhotep, god of medicine, not very effective. So all of these gods are mocked. So by the end of this, by the way, 30 gods out of the pantheon of maybe 80 or more are specifically targeted by all of these plagues. Finally, I want you to notice that now the time has come for God to begin hardening Pharaoh's heart. This is the first time we've seen him stated to be doing it overtly up until this point. So that would seem to suggest that the boils have brought Pharaoh to his breaking point. Where had it not been for God's actions at this point, we would all be sitting here today talking about the six plagues of Egypt. But because God steps in at this point, Pharaoh is prevented from letting Israel go when he might have otherwise been willing to do so. Next time, we'll finish the plagues, including moving into the tent. Father, thank you for the chance to to see your word in a new and fresh way. And I pray, Father, that it would have as its purpose in our lives and in our hearts a greater desire to obey and serve you. Let it also motivate us and, and urge us forward, Father, to bring the gospel to others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.